0: You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like Him.
1: Hi, please be seated. Um, My name is Marcus and I'm a part of Focus and I'll be reading the Bible for us today. Um, Our passage is taken from Daniel 3, so please flip with me to Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever!' Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, sither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have sent over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve you, they, ne- they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, "Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up?" Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not... the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon.
0: What an epic reading, hey? What a long reading. Thanks so much, Marcus, for reading that. Well, welcome to see you. I want to add my welcome onto Mel's. It's great that you're here, especially if you're new. We love having you along. Something we do here at CU is we love studying God's Word because we believe that God speaks to us through His Word. And so if you don't have the passage open, I'd love you to have it open in front of you. We're going to look at this for the next 30 minutes or so. We're going to be in it for a while. uh, So please do have it open in front of you. Well, the year is 2009, and me and my family, we're winging our way across the world to Ethiopia, and when we get to Ethiopia, we don't stay in the capital, no, we go up to Shire, which is up north in Ethiopia, and we stay in this orphanage, kind of. And while we're there, we bring some stuff from Australia, and me and my dad think, let's teach some of the Ethiopian boys footy. And so you can imagine, right, there's no field in the place, and so we kind of allot this space The grass is this high, and so we get out our our size and we cut down our size, cut down the grass, not our size, uh, cut down the the grass and we make this field. There's divots all over the place, there's rocks, there's potholes, we cover some of them in. We get old timber, set it up as this kind of goal-like fashion, and then we pull out a random oblong shape, a footy. And I remember the look, it was kind of like a look of what on earth is this thing? What is this random thing? It's not a circular ball, it's a, it's a random oval-like shape. Footy didn't work that well, let's be honest. We just kind of bombed the ball like down the field. I'm not a good footy player, but then we brought out the soccer ball. And I'm a good soccer player, but the ground was so uneven, and I am nowhere near as fast as a lot of those Ethiopian boys, and I was falling left, right, center, in the pothole over here. My dad took a tumble, I distinctly remember seeing that out of the corner of my eye. And it was hard, right? how do I live and how do I be an Australian in an Ethiopian context? And I'm sure you've felt this kind of cultural difference before, this kind of shearing, if you will. But maybe there's a different example that's closer to home. See, my home is a shoes-on home. Now, I realize I'm wearing thongs, so this illustration doesn't kind of work, but be assured, I wear shoes most of the time. But I wear shoes in my bedroom. I wear shoes while I'm watching TV. Shoes are on all the time in my house. But some houses of my friends do this weird thing where you take the shoes off at the door. And I have to know, as a shoes-on guy, how I'm going to live in a shoes-off house when I go there. The thing for me is I need to bring socks because my feet get cold. That's a fun example, but our international student friends that are here tonight will know this even more profoundly. At the moment, international students coming in will understand this idea of how do I live as a stranger in a strange place away from my home? How do I go shopping? Buy food? Where's the local shops? Well, that's where we find the people of Israel in our story today. So the people of Israel are God's chosen people, and to catch you up on the Bible story, right, they're chosen, they're given a land, but they rebel against God. And so God sends them into captivity, into exile, away from their promised land. They're now strangers in a strange place away from their home. And so the question of Daniel is how are they going to live as God's chosen people away from home in exile? And particularly Daniel chapter 3, the big question is how will they faithfully worship God while in exile? Now, that might seem a little bit far-fetched to you, but I want to suggest it's actually not. If you're not a Christian here, or you're just checking Jesus out, you need to know that the whole Bible actually describes us all as rebellious against God, scattered amongst the earth. But in Jesus, a people like us who are not a people, in his death and resurrection, are forgiven and made into a people. With Jesus as our king, and we're given a new home. Like in that last song that we sung, I'll rise to meet him there, right? Jesus in heaven is our new home once we're a Christian. But we're here now. And so the Bible says that we're called elect exiles. We're people whose home is elsewhere, and yet we're here on earth now. And so my question for you tonight is, this year, how will you worship God? At Monash University. If you're an engineer like me, here's the structure. You might like it. It's only got two points, so everyone can count, even art students. Uh, uh, The challenge Nebuchadnezzar makes, point number one, the challenge. Point number two, the response from God's faithful people. Point number one, the challenge. Point number two, the response. How about I pray as we get stuck into God's word? Would you pray with me? Lord, we do pray that as we open your word now and we spend some time understanding your word, we pray that you would, by your spirit, give us understanding, apply it to our hearts and lives, that we might become more and more like Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me set the scene, right? We know that the, the Israelites are in captivity, but in the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, where they're now in exile, has this dream. And the dream's a little bit of a weird dream. He dreams that there's this statue with a head of gold. He wakes up, he's frightened, he doesn't know what to do, and so he calls in all his magicians and astronomers, they don't know what to do, and so they call in Daniel, and Daniel interprets the dream and says, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold is your kingdom, which will ultimately be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and praises God. Look with me, chapter 2, verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar falls prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. And here's the important bit. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the court. So Nebuchadnezzar praises God and promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then we hit chapter 3, verse 1. Have a look, chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. In the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was the image or the head of gold. He's humbled, and then straight away he builds an image of gold. It's almost like he's saying, yes, I know that God said that my kingdom won't last forever, but it actually will. Surprise, surprise. Heads up, if you want the end of the story, it doesn't. But this kingdom, uh, this image is huge. It's 27 meters tall. I tried to estimate this before. I think it's five times the height of that like the top of the roof there. It's over half the height of Menzies. And it's 2.7 meters wide, which is roughly about me twice, something like that. This statue is massive. It's set up on the plain of Jura. Everyone can see it from all the way around. And people, when the proclamation's made, people are to fall down and worship it. When the proclamation's made and the worship music's played, everyone is to fall on their faces. That might seem unusual to you, that idea. But in lots of countries and cultures around the world, it's simply not. In Muslim countries, a sound is played five times a day across the city, and everyone gets down and prays to their God. And everyone does it, right? All people, all nations, all languages, doesn't matter, everyone does it. But three men don't. Privately. Like, I don't assume, right? I don't assume they're kind of like walking into the middle of the city and be like, we will not bow down to this statue. That's not what's going on here. But they are found out about it. Someone dobs them in. So have a look, verse 12, at the accusation. There are some Jews who you set over the affairs of province of Babylon, O Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Did you see that? The increase of the scope of the accusation, right? They don't come and say, oh, they just don't bear down. They come and say, no, they don't pay any attention to you, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. But I think there's a small moment of self-preservation in there too, Or, or maybe compassion. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are rulers over the province of Babylon. And they're probably pretty good at it. And so I think if it was a normal slave, a normal pleb, they'd probably just get thrown into the fire. But the king wants to give them one last chance. And so he calls them in. And you can picture the scene with me, can't you? Like imagine there, that's kind of like that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of walk down the center. And the king's up here on his throne. And all the advisors are around. And the image is somewhere off in the distance there. And the blazing furnace is over there. And they come in and the king says, verse 14, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to save you from my hand. The king reiterates the challenge. Will you turn or will you burn? Will you turn or will you burn? But I don't think this passage is actually that simple. See, it's often presented as that, right? Either they worship the image of gold, or they worship God. But Babylon is pluralistic. At Nebuchadnezzar's speech in the last chapter, he says, your God is a God of gods, plural. The accusation brought against the three men is that they worship only God, but they don't worship their gods, plural. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to give up their worship of God. I think he's asking them to tack on to their worship of God, the worship of the idol, the image. He's saying, just just bend the knee for a short time, why don't you, and worship my image and go back about your life. And it's kind of tolerant. Nebuchadnezzar has acknowledged their God, so why won't they acknowledge his idol? He wants them to just compromise on the only, their exclusivity of worship. And so here is the central tension of this entire text. Will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worship the image of gold or God? But actually, will they worship God or Nebuchadnezzar's image as well? It's a question of how many gods they worship, how many idols they worship. And then he issues a challenge then who can save you out of my hand? And are you willing to die, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, for such a seemingly small compromise? Well, what would you say? What would you do? I can think of three justifications off the top of my head why we might just bow down and go with it, why they might bow down and go with it. Here's the first one, the kind of missionary argument, right? We're in a new culture, we've got to adapt to their customs, so let's just go out to the pub and get drunk so then we can have missional conversations. Or maybe it's the second one, the ends justify the means. See, they're good rulers of the province of Babylon. If they go, the next ones will probably be corrupt. They're probably going to treat the people really, really badly. And so they think, oh, maybe we'll just bow down to the image three minutes a day, and then we can do better, greater good overall. Or maybe it's simply this. Everyone else is doing it. So surely it can't be that bad. What are they going to do? What are they going to say? Well, rather than speculating, let's have a look at what they do. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego reply, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So what do they say? No, Nebuchadnezzar, We will not worship your idol because to not worship God only is to not worship him at all. To not worship God only is to not worship him at all. If we're good Jews, we'll have in the back of our mind at this point, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, the founding document of how people of Israel are supposed to be God's faithful people. Just have a listen to this, the third command. This is what God says. This is how you are to worship God. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. To not worship God only is to not worship him at all. And then they say God can deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your idol. We will not worship your idol. We will worship God only. Alone, and, and this is a direct response to Nebuchadnezzar's challenge, right? Nebuchadnezzar's challenge is, then what God can save you from my hand? And their answer is, our God can. And this, I feel like, is the high point of the story, right? It's the moment where the hero comes in, gives the big speech, everyone's about to go off to war, you know, the kind of heart speech. It's that moment. Why? Why can they say that? Well, I think this is the reason. Their trust in God is greater than their fear of the king. They trust that God rules over the nations and all the idols and the images are nothing. And the author goes to pains to show this in two different ways, I think. The first one is this he emphasizes that the image is something Nebuchadnezzar had set up by his own hand. Now, imagine for me, if you will, that I'd gone into my backyard and I'd got a block of wood and I'd carved it really nicely and it ended up in an amazing lectern like that. How can that possibly be God? How can that possibly be worthy of my worship? But the second way is this the repetition of the musical instruments. So here you are, 20 seconds. Have a look through the text. How many times is this big list of musical instruments given? Turn to the person next to you, confer. What do you think the result is? Go. Okay. there we go. That's time. I count it as four, four times throughout the text. Why is this long list of musical instruments Let me find it for a sec. Horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music. In 30 verses, it's repeated four times. I think because the author's intending to show us that look at this smoke and mirrors, the amazing music, the massive show, all for what? Nothing. It's all just a show. And the three guys, I think, know their history pretty well, right? They know that God can rescue them out of exile he's rescued the the people of Israel out of Egypt and so the high point of the story is they say we will not compromise even to their deaths it's important to realize they don't know they're going to be delivered but they love God more than their life and they trust him What's the result? Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage, and so he orders them to be thrown into the blazing furnace, tied up, in they go. The fire is seven times hotter, that's a perfect number, it means it's super, super hot. They get thrown into the furnace, and the men that throw them in are burnt to a crisp. Here you go, classic bad dad joke. They're Kentucky Fried Soldiers. There you go. Isn't it great? I love being. <laughs> what a good joke. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar stands up from his throne and he asks a really obvious maths question. How many men did I just chuck into the fire? And hopefully, and everyone gets it right, right? The advisors say three, and that's correct. But wait, he sees Four. There's four people in the fire and they're walking around. Now, I'm a bit of a pyromaniac, I love burning things, and so, not not me, but if I burn my finger accidentally, I hate putting pressure on it, right? If I burn my feet, I'm not walking. But these men are walking, and there's four of them. Who's the fourth one? Well, there's lots of debates about this, it could be Jesus, it could be an angel. I don't think it actually matters. The point is that God is with them in the fire. And this shouldn't be understated, right? Think about the context. We have the people of Israel who have rejected God. They've been sent away from the temple, the place where God dwells with his people. Now they're over here in Babylon. And guess what? Even as strangers in a strange place, God is not estranged from his faithful. God is with them. And there's no smell of smoke. Now, again, coming back to my pyromaniac, we light fires in our front room in a fireplace, just FYI, in a fireplace quite often. And I can smell on my jumper for about three days when the fire's been lit because of the smell of smoke. But so complete is their deliverance that there's no smell of smoke on them at all. And so Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and he praises God. Have a look at verse 28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, that's God, and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore I decree, and this gets a bit bloody, therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language, that's all people again, who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. And so the answer of the thread that's been running through this whole text, right? The challenge at the start is, then what God can save you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's answer is, our God can. And now Nebuchadnezzar say, yes, your God Can. What are we to do with this? How are we as Christians living now away from our heavenly home supposed to worship God at Monash CU and at university this year? I've got two application points for you. We'll see how they go. The first one is this. Heed the warning of compromise. Heed the warning of compromise. Here's the question I want you to think about. In what ways are you trying to worship God and something else? In what ways are you trying to worship God and something else? I've picked up, I think, maybe three of the main idols of university nowadays. Let's see how they go. Number one, the idol of tolerance. See, society says that you cannot speak about your faith. You can have your faith, but keep it private. And the peer pressure is sometimes so intense to do so. Are you going to try and worship God and deep down also just make sure that you're always accepted by your friends? You never speak about your faith. You never say anything that might rustle any feathers or spark some curiosity or some interest. Or maybe it's the idol of sex. Sex. Are you going to try and worship God, but then also, deep down, really want and find and hope for satisfaction in a marriage, in dating? Are you going to pursue dating a non-Christian for that sake? Maybe try and pursue sex before marriage, because what you really want, deep down, is that fulfillment and satisfaction are you going to chase after the idol of money? This is a big one at uni. We're all here because we want to get jobs eventually. Is that your goal in life? Really deep down. Yeah, you you want to worship God, but, but also, also, I want to make sure that I'm comfortable and secure and rich and wealthy and happy. You cannot serve both. You cannot worship both. And trust me, I need to hear this as well. It's so easy, right? If someone was to give me the choice right now, will you worship God or will you worship money? That choice is easy. It's done. But over time, with the choice of will you worship God and also money, that's a much harder temptation to resist. And so why would you resist it? Point number two application, trust the God who is faithful. There's three things, there's three truths in this passage that kind of all come out simultaneously. And here they are, the three truths. God delivers, God is with us, and God rules over the kings of the nations and the gods of the nations. See, the passages answered to Nebuchadnezzar's challenges, then what God will save you from my hand is our God can, our God's able The deliverance in this story is to show that God vindicates or proves right those who trust in him. And for us, our ultimate deliverance comes on the cross as Jesus dies in our place for our sin. And our ultimate vindication or prove to be in the right is on the final day when Jesus returns and we go to be in our heavenly home. But in the here and now, God can still deliver people from persecution. I think it's right that we pray for that. And I want to ask you a question. We don't get persecuted much in Australia, but people overseas really do. How often do you pray for them? Pray that they might be delivered from persecution. But he might not deliver them. If you put this text in context, the Jews are in exile, there's probably lots of Jews dying for their faith. We get six across the chapters of Daniel, six incidents in 70 years worth of exile. Last year, 6,000 Christians died for their faith. Out of the 12 apostles, 11 that we know of died for their faith. The call on us is to trust God while we wait for the heavenly home. But I think this passage is also super clear, right? God is with us. As strangers in a strange land now, God isn't estranged from us, but He's with us. When you walk into class, into your tutoring room, into your lecture, into your lab, hopefully no more Zoom online meetings, God is with you, no matter where you go. And God rules over all the idols of the nations. And for us now, Jesus rules all the idols over all the idols of the nations. They're all empty. Some of them are good things, like money is a good thing, sex in its right place is a good thing, but they're not God. They're terrible idols, they're terrible masters. And in the context of eternity, I reckon they'll all seem pretty worthless. If you spend your life trying to get rich, guess what? You can't take it with you. For 30 seconds, as we wrap up, I just want to react against what you might be feeling, which is what I'm suggesting, potentially, that you might be thinking, is this idea of a holy huddle, right? The world is bad and we must retreat into this little huddle. But that's not what's going on in the text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are over the province of Babylon. And at the end of the chapter, they're promoted. They're working hard for the good of the city. They're working hard to love people, to serve people well. And so when there's the opportunity, they testify about their God that they trust. And it results in praise now, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, but also later. And whether it does in our context or not, it will ultimately. Every knee will bow when Jesus returns. And so we return to the question. How do we worship God at university this year? We seek to love people well, work hard, testify to the faithful God who rules, knowing that he's with us. And ultimately, and primarily from this chapter, don't compromise. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.